All right, good morning, church. Good to see you guys. I am rocking sandals, and I have a stool behind me just in case, because yesterday I sprained my ankle. Uh, I was feeling left out from my hips and wanted to get in on the action. And um, I would like to say that I was like, you know, kicking bad guys and saving orphans or something, but the reality is I was running uh, down a very flat road. And then the next thing I know, I'm on my back, <laughs> and I, uh, I don't know what happened, but apparently, you know, I've still got some physical therapy stuff to, to work out, so if I reach for the stool, uh, you'll know what's going on, uh, but we, uh, anybody here this morning uh, struggle with impatience, they have problems like me, that's cards on the table, I am not a patient person, construction season going up to Anchorage makes me want to rip the steering wheel out of my car and just baptize some people in the name of Jesus. I just get so, I get so frustrated. I am an extremely time-oriented person. And so when I told, if I say that we're going to meet at three o'clock, you know what that means? Three o'clock, not 301, not 302, definitely not 310 or 410. We're trying to have a society here, people. And I'll, I'll tell I hate waiting on packages from Amazon. Like, if I was, if I'm cheaper than I am impatient, otherwise I would like next day air it. If there was an instantly appear option for Amazon, I would choose that one. Three to five days, are you kidding me? This is insane. And we live in this smartphone world where I feel like I should be able to get a hold of anybody whenever I want. If I texted you and within three seconds, I'm not getting those bubbles, we're having a problem, Right? Where are you? I've I've texted you. I have Facebooked you. I've called you. I've Instagrammed you. I downloaded and Snapchatted you. And I don't even like Snapchat. You need to respond to me. We live in this world where we're used to the microwave instant response. Luckily, I never hypocritically make other people wait on me, right? That never never happens. Do Do you struggle with impatience? Do you struggle trusting God's way? His His timing, not yours. His way, not yours. Well, there's room for you at my table. Today in our story, we're going to see Saul hopping back on the struggle bus, and he's going to be failing to, again, to patiently wait on God's timing. And what we're going to see today is jealous decisions, rash vows, and devastating consequences. Should be fun. Um, The author here is screaming to us a warning. Don't go Saul's way. May the Lord open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear. See a mirror toward our own impatient, untrusting souls and cling to Jesus. That's that's where we're going this morning. Previously on King of Kings. You remember uh, 1 Samuel 8 is where we started the series where Israel asks for a king. Uh, they, They show that they are trusting in humans, human kings like the other nations around them and not their God. And so we saw in Samuel 9 and 10, God gives them Saul. This tall, dark, handsome, and rich king. He's the Shaul of their Sha'al. We said he's the choice of their choosing, the ask of their asking, the kind of king they were trusting in. And then last week we saw Saul. He actually started out okay, but he quickly devolves into impatience and self-reliance and eventually in his blatant act of disobedience where he did not wait for God to send Samuel to the sacrifices like he had been told to wait. We see his crown, his, the descendants of Saul will be cut off from the kingly line. A reminder that when we rebel against the king of kings, our true authority, it never goes well. It never goes well. And this was no exception. 
Now this week, we're going to introduce a new character out of the scene. We're going to introduce Jonathan. He is the, uh, the Simba to Saul's Mufasa. And he is going to make his first appearance in our major appearance in our story. He is back in, in chapter 13 as well. But what the author is going to do today is show us a stark contrast between Jonathan and Saul. And we're going to see in Jonathan a faith in God's word. And in, in Saul, we're going to see his own foolish words and an arrogant trust in himself. Now, when we last left our king, remember at the end of chapter 13, the Philistine army is pressing in on the Israelites. They're surrounded by a much larger army. And it said they had no, they had hardly any men, 600 men at the time. They got no weapons. And it said the Philistines even took away their blacksmiths so they couldn't even make weapons. They're up a creek. What do they do? How is Saul going to lead him out of this spot? Will he trust the Lord or will he just go his own way again? First one we're going to see is Jonathan. We'll see Jonathan first, and we'll see his faith in God's word. And when we apply faith into God's word, we, we find victory. Now, he's the oldest of John's sons, or Saul's sons, so he would have been next in line to be king, but somebody has already messed that up, Dad. Now, look what happens in verse 1, chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his Father. Now, in the in the Hebrew, um, the, the armor bearer for the for the for the Hebrew, um, we, we might think of like a shield carrying lackey, just like a patsy. I got your got your armor, Saul, ready to go. Um, or or Jonathan, um, he, or almost like like a a golf caddy. Like I recommend the nine iron, right? So he's just telling Saul, use the sword. Yeah, that's a good one, right? But but actually, with, with the Hebrew, what what we saw was these these guys were studs. They were great fighters. They were like their right-hand man. This is the, the Robin to his Batman, if you will. Bam, pow, they're ready to go. And so what, what Batman is saying to Robin is let's go on a secret mission and we're going to take out some Philistines who, by the way, should have already been defeated if back in chapter 13, Saul would have trusted in his God. Keep that in mind. Verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That garrison is just a word for troop. This is a troop of Philistines. And he calls them the uncircumcised. This is a derogatory term toward those who are outside of God's covenant people, the Israelites, these dogs, these Philistine uncircumcised men. Let's go get them. Now listen to the words of faith. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. These words echo his future buddy, David, facing the giant. And what's he saying here? It doesn't matter if there's 10,000 of us or two of us. God is more than capable. The God of the universe can beat anybody, any human, no matter how large their army. And I love this. This is like a touching scene in a war movie. His armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I don't know why he's British all of a sudden or whatever, but as I'm with you, Robin says, let's do this, Batman. I'll follow you into war. Let's get after it. So he, he says, okay, let's, let's see how we're going to engage. Verse eight, they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go. So if, the, if they say, wait there, the Philistines say, wait there, then we're, we're going to wait. Or, but if they say, come up to us, then we'll go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So to answer the question, should I stay or should I go? It's going to be based on their response. He says, if God, God's going to show us very clearly here. And if they say, come on up, that's God's cue to us, that he's going to give us victory in this 
moment. So how do the Philistines respond? Verse 11. Both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Remember in 13, they all went hiding because of how much larger the Philistine army was. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. <laughs> yeah, they will. Um, I love the ESV. So you hear the arrogance of the Philistines here. Yeah, come on up. We're not scared of you. They see him like two little bunnies popping their heads up out of the holes. Oh, look, they're so cute. Come on up here. We won't hurt you. But what they're going to find is these two cute little bunnies turn more into that killer rabbit from Monty Python and to make them all go run away. This is the third straight week I've referenced that movie. Um, and uh, in verse 12, so Jonathan says, all right, they said, come up. He said to his armor bearer, come up after me. for The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. It's go time. They said God's cue. And look what happens. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. At that first strike, with Jonathan, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. In other words, a half an acre. That's what they're trying to say there. And Batman and Robin take out 20 guys, 20 to 2. It's like one of those fight scenes in like Walker, Texas Ranger, the very unrealistic movie scene where it's like one guy beating a bunch of guys. But in this situation, with God on their side, would love to see how that scene would actually unfold. But they defeat 10 times the amount of men as they brought to the fight. So what do we see happening here with Jonathan and his right-hand man? We see that when we act on faith in God's word, the result is victory. Now, this is, this is why we talked about context is so important. We said last week we want to we look at the description before the prescription. In other words, what does the story say before we just apply it to our own lives? Because we can't just look at this passage and go, well, sweet. If someone says come on over to them and I don't like them, then, then me and Robin can just beat them up. Like God will just give us victory whenever we, we move in somewhere. We've got bullies at school. Or, or maybe we try to apply this because the nation of Israel is having a military victory here. So we just go, okay. So our American military, if we pray, God will give us victory over what, whatever enemy we're fighting. God's on our side. We've got to look at the context. God has made a specific promise to a specific group of people. Remember when God said to Abraham, Clear, but I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then he says to Abraham in Genesis 17, I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, where he had started, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He says, I'm going to give you this land of Canaan, which becomes the nation um, where Israel dwells. But he says, but first, there's some, there are other nations occupying that land that I need to drive out. Makes another promise. Look at Leviticus. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase a ten thousand. Or in this case, two of you will chase twenty, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. He says, I'm going to drive these enemies out, who, by the way, were wicked nations that God was punishing for their own wickedness. And then Exodus 23, little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to what? The Sea of the Philistines. Particularly victory over the Philistine army and their people, giving them their land. And from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Who will drive them out? He said, I will. I will give you victory. If you trust and obey me, I will drive these enemies out and give you this land. A specific promise 
that today Jonathan is banking on. I know God is going to give us victory over the Philistines. We can move by faith when he says go. For us today, there's a difference between presumption and confidence. There's a big difference between presumption and confidence. Look at what Warren Wearsby says. Action without promises is presumption. But when you have God's promises, you can go forward with confidence. Do you see what he's saying here? What are the, what are the promises God's made to you? Because we don't just go out rogue style and say, well, I'm going to do what I want, and God will be this little lucky charm in my pocket who will make it work for me. So I'm a Christian, so if I apply for this new job, God will give it to me. Like if I pray, if I trust him, he'll give me what I want. Do you, do you hear the selfishness in that language? Those aren't promises. Here, here's the problem. The Bible has never said that God has given us health, wealth, and happiness in this life as a follower of Jesus. That, that you're going to be able to beat up the bad guys that you don't like. In fact, Timothy says the opposite. He says anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. The one thing we're guaranteed is if we follow Jesus, we'll suffer like he did. We've got to make sure we know what the specific promises are that God has given to us before we move in confidence in them. See, we don't live, we, we, this is our timeline for the, the Bible, remember? And, and we don't live in the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. Different covenant promises he had made to that nation. What about us today in the church age? What promises has he made to us so that we're not just going out in presumption, but we're banking on the promises God has given to the body Christ. What do we know? A firm foundation, John 10. I give them eternal life and they will, there's your promise word, they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a pretty sure footing to start with. I will give you eternal life and no one can ever take it away from you. You can operate in confidence out of that. A security in our today and our forever tomorrow. And then First Peter. Second Peter, excuse me, by his divine power, verse 3, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. For what? Living in the tax bracket we want? For living a godly life. He says, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to do what? To share his divine nature? and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So these promises he's given us is not to do what we want, but to be sharing in his nature, to be like him, to walk with him, and to not live like the corrupted world around us. Do you see the promises? So we apply this. When God says to you, I want you to go, Jonathan finds himself in a valley, a dark valley, way outnumbered. And when he looks at us today, he says, I want you to go love that very difficult person in your life. And you know exactly who I'm talking about. And he goes, for you, it's impossible. Or when he says, I want you to walk through this. Maybe, maybe you're this morning here in a season of your life and you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see the way out of the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I've given you a promise that no one's going to snatch you from me. And that everything, if I've called you to love, if I've called you to hold on by faith, I'll give you all the resources in Jesus to do what I've asked you to do. And like Jonathan, we can respond and say his words. It may be that the Lord will work for us. He's on our side. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If you're in Christ, we can trust that he's going to get you through this. He's going to save you more than conquerors. What a beautiful promise we have in Jesus So like Jonathan, we can boldly move ahead in confidence on the promises, the specific promises God has given to us.
Now, where Jonathan acts in faith in God's promises, we're going to contrast that. We're going to see Saul's rash presumption. Uh, Check this out. Saul shows us that our foolish words can bring big, big time trouble. Um, Verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, this is the high priest, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. So Saul sees that things are starting to look up for the army as David kind of paves the way, or excuse me, Jonathan paves the way for him. So he calls over the priest of the ark of the covenant. Now, typically what they would do before the ark was cast lots. And these lots would help determine what God's will was for them, how they would go forward in battle, trusting in his wisdom. So Saul starts out pretty good here, right? Again, his character is complicated. He makes some good decisions. He makes some bad decisions. So he starts and says, let's ask God how we continue this battle. Good job, Saul. But then it goes downhill very, very quickly. And we see Saul once again being Saul. Verse 19. Now, while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult or chaos in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. As Jonathan went up there, he not only took out 20 guys, but he caused this chaos and panic among the, the camp, the text says. So Saul sees and he hears this tumult and he waves off the priest going, never mind. I got this. It's go time. Daddy smells blood. And they just move ahead. He waves off the priest. And in his own presumption and impatience, Saul moves ahead. And what does he do next? More foolishness. A rash vow. Saul makes a rash vow. Verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted any food. He says, We're breathing down their necks. We can win this one. No one eats until we're victorious. Makes this super rash vow for the soldiers not to be able to eat until evening. Now, three things here. First of all, this is, a, this is selfish, what Saul's doing here. Look at what he says. Until I am avenged on my enemies. Do you, see, do you hear his heart in this? That, that Saul, who's he consider, he's not considering his men in this process. And how often do we make decisions and totally forget to consider the people around us in those decisions? Our, our sin nature is so self-centered that we don't consider the others and the ramifications of our decisions on other people around us. We're not an island. This is selfish of Saul. Secondly, this is foolish. This is foolish. Now, the ESV, it says the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul laid an oath on them. But the NIV kind of clarifies for us, the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath. Why were they distressed? Why were they hard-pressed? Because they haven't eaten. Like, I've been working out again, which you've seen how well that's gone for me. And when I'm on the elliptical or the, uh, the treadmill or whatever is afterwards, I need some calories, right? I've been burning some. I need to be fed. These men have been in a war all day long. Can we get a cliff bar or something? What we see here, and, and this, the Hebrew, actually, it's a cool word play. Um, the word to lay an oath on that he, Saul uses here is the same phrase as it means to act foolishly or self-centeredly or stubbornly, which is exactly see, what we see Saul doing here. To have his men fighting an, an empty stomach is foolish. It's selfish, it's foolish, and then thirdly, it's rash. It's rash. Again, he waves off the priest, not listening to God and what he wants. He says, I'm going to do it. It leads to this rash vow. Now, we've seen this before. If you remember in the book of Judges, remember Jephthah? What did Jephthah do? He says, God, if you'll give me the victory over the Ammonites, I'll sacrifice the next thing that comes running out of my door. And who is it? It's his own daughter. 
It's an awkward moment. And you know how his daughter responds in Judges 11. You have become the cause of great trouble to me as an understatement. Jonathan says the same words. Interesting. Same phrase. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land here in chapter 14. Both men put their children in danger of death, as we'll see with Jonathan, because of their rash vows. Now, this reminds us of this biblical principle of humility. As we approach our God, the third king in our uh, series, Solomon, who's coming, he'll famously say this in Ecclesiastes. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? God's in heaven. You're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. As you stand before your God, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Don't just start spouting off, making promises, claiming things. Jesus, in, in Matthew 5, said, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Don't even make these kind of promises. Why would you do that? Let, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Just be a person of your word. Don't make these crazy rash vows like Saul did, because what we see with this rash vow is it leads to some vicious repercussions, some vicious repercussions. While Jonathan was busy whipping the bad guys, he didn't hear his dad's crazy ultimatum. And in the story, it says that he ate some honey from the tip of his staff. Now, right after he eats it, one of the men come up to him, verse 28. One of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. Now, if I'm Jonathan, I'm going, dude, that had been very useful information 10 seconds ago, right? Pre-honey consumption. You're killing me, Smalls. Verse 29. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my, the, my eyes have become bright because I've tasted a little of this honey. And now there's another wordplay here. He goes, my eyes are bright. I can see clearly. My father does not see clearly. Verse 30, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Because this would have been so much better if we'd have had some food in our bellies. We'd have had some strength, some nourishment. Battle could have gone very well. Now look at what happens as the repercussions continue. Verse 31, they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to a place I cannot pronounce. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood, it says. The people are faint. They see some protein sitting there and they're going to eat it. Like Lord of the Rings, Gollum style, right? Just raw. We're just getting into it. Now, what does it say? They ate it with the blood still in it. Now, there's a very specific reason that that detail comes out in the text. This is a violation of God's covenant with his people, part of his law. Look at what he says back in Leviticus. The life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. Why? For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. God God took this very seriously. Why? Blood represented life. So he says, out of respect for the life that I've given you, don't eat of this animal when the life is still inside of it. Which is why, when Jesus sheds his blood on the cross, it represents what? God giving us his gift of life back. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the blood of Jesus. So this is wrong of the people to eat the meat with the blood in it. But why are they starving and fainting in the first place? Saul's put them in this position with his rash vow. This is bad leadership. 
and it's devastating consequences. Let's finish up the story. Verse 36, then Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning. Let's not leave a man among them. So Saul's still pushing the gas pedal. They said, do whatever seems good to you. They're like, whatever. Then the, but the priest said, let us draw near to God here. He goes, did you not just learn from your mistake, Saul? Slow your roll and let's check with God. And so he does. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But what happens? He did not answer him that day. He gets no, res- no response from God. There's broken fellowship. Now, I think it's, well, a lot of that's because of Saul's own sinful impatience here. But Saul goes, well, somebody must have violated my rule about eating. That's why God's not responding to us. Verse 38, Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. There's a sin amongst the people. And then he goes, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in my son, John, my, Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. And what he's saying here, he doesn't know it's Jonathan yet. He goes, even if it's my son, Jonathan, whoever it is, got to kill him. So they cast some lots. And it narrows down. And who is it? It's his son, Jonathan, indeed, who has actually been the one who ate of the honey. Look at what happens. Jonathan, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan said to him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. He accepts the consequences of his father's folly. Saul said, God, do so to me. And more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He's going to kill his own son. But the people step in. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. The people step in and say, heck no, this guy's not going to die. He's the one that saved us. You're not taking his life. Now, how's the story end? Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The Philistines are alive and well. Why? Because Saul has not acted in obedience to his God to drive out the enemy like God has promised him. The shiny new king has not obeyed the king of kings. And we hold up the mirror here, and as we always going to do, we go, well, how do, what do I see in my own life in this? Saul's fear and his pride have resulted in this rash word, these rash actions that have harmed his people and almost killed his own son. So let me ask us this morning, where have you seen fear or pride lead you to rash words or actions that that have hurt others or potentially could hurt others? Maybe you've lashed out at a spouse or a child, a friend, a coworker. You flew off the handle because you were afraid or you 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 were angry and you said something that cut deep. Or you made some kind of promise that you could never, never hold. A foolish word. Maybe you rushed into a big decision without seeking God's word first, without talking to him, praying about it, without talking to your spouse. Never a good idea I hear. And we rush into these things because I want to do it my timetable, my watch, the way I want to do it. And we do not wait on the Lord. And what Saul's mess shows us today is exactly what happens when we try to do it our way, whereas Jonathan shows us what happens when we do it God's way. But here's the question. 
What's God's way, right? What, what does wisdom look like for us? If we want to walk this path that Jonathan took, what does that look like for us? Well, three principles, and then we'll be done. First of all, wisdom is to humbly fear your God. Wisdom is to humbly fear your God. Proverbs 9, we read this last week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if you want to walk God's way, the first step is to humbly acknowledge that there is a God and that you're not Him. And as we come into His presence, we bow the knee, And we recognize, man, I'm in God's story. God's not in mine. This is about him and and his story and and the part I get to play in his story. See, Saul was afraid and he looked inside. He waved off the priest, did it in his own understanding. My time and my way. Whereas Jonathan said, nothing can stop my God from doing what he's going to do. Recognizing his God was in control and that Jonathan was a part of his story. How are we living our lives? We're trying to do things our way, our timing, and just trying to then use God as a lucky charm to get our way? Or are we saying, God, what would you have me do today? You're in control. Number two, wisdom is to walk by faith. Wisdom is to, is to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, now notice the word walk here. Wisdom is not just knowing God's will, God's way. Wisdom is doing, it's acting, it's a walk. It implies what? Motion, moving forward. Now, both of the characters in our story today move, right? And swiftly. Jonathan actually goes out before his dad does. But what's the difference? Jonathan dares not move a foot until he's sure of what God's told him, what the promises God's made to him. He says, when they say come up, that's my cue from God to go. Waiting on his God, whereas Saul moves swiftly, but not by faith. He moves impatiently, doesn't even wait for the priest to finish casting lots. So we see Jonathan. Jonathan's a man who walks by faith in God's promise. He is, it's in a fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And there we see action. Faith does result in action, whereas Saul walks by sight, looking at his circumstances, freaking out about his circumstance, and that leads to a reaction. So in our lives, are we acting out of love and the best interest from someone else, or am I reacting out of fear, out of anger, out of some emotion? Am I acting, or am I reacting? Acting by faith, reacting by fear. And thirdly, wisdom is to, walk, is to pray about everything. So if you're wondering what, like, give me a practical step here to walk in today. This is what I would say. Whenever you're feeling anxious, feeling impulsive, frustrated, right? You feel the anger rising up through your eyeballs. The kids are driving you crazy. You're juggling a million things in your life. The fears are closing in. God would invite us to stop and pray. Lean not on your own understanding. James 1.5 says it this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, and we all lack wisdom, just to get that clear, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will, here's a promise for us to bank on, like Jonathan, it will be given to him. If we ask, and he says in faith, the next verse, not a double-minded man, in faith, we ask for wisdom, he will give it to us. He's promised us that in Jesus. And so we're moving to make a decision in our lives. Man, we got to stop and we got to acknowledge a God who's in control and ask what his way would be for us. And how often do we do this? Well, 1 Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. You know what that phrase means in the Greek? It means without ceasing. 
In fact, the word actually means without intermission. Don't take a break. We're always to be praying. Pray about everything. It's amazing how often I fail it to, and forget to do this. I've got a big decision in my life, and I'm freaking out about it. I'm a total overanalyzer, and I'm an outward processor, so let's sit down and talk about it. We'll figure it out, man. But I'm still leaning on my own wisdom. I'm not saying, God, what would you want? How would you have me act in this situation? How would you have me respond? And in his word and in prayer, leaning not on my understanding, but trust in him. And then act. It's a walk of faith. We don't just pray and then wait. We pray and we move forward by faith, trusting his specific promises to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ, we've been given every single thing we need for life and godliness. And we see this with Jonathan. He knew that you had promised him and his people victory over, over the Canaanites, over the Philistines. And so he just simply moved forward and you said to go. And God, we know that in your word, you've promised us that you've given us everything we need, anything you've called us to do. And maybe there's someone here today that needs to say a hard word to a loved one, that needs to extend forgiveness or grace or just to be able to make it through today in what looks like an impossible situation. But you told us this great and precious promise in Jesus. You've given us everything we need to live the way you called us to live and to not respond in a corrupt, sinful way. We walk through that valley. We put our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we be a people who act in faith, a confidence in your promises, not presumption. We don't get to tell you how you're going to move in our lives. We first ask you, God, how do we lean into your story and to do your will, not our own? May we be a people who are confident in your son, who is both the means and the end. It's in his wise, powerful, beautiful name that we pray. Amen.